use this marred and weak and imperfect vessel, Lord, to speak through, that you might be glorified, that the people here would be touched, that our lives would be transformed. We thank you and praise you. You're a great and awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a seat. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. It's great to have you here. I want to encourage you to come out tonight for a time of prayer and worship and communion. And before we get started, I have to apologize. Uh, I appreciate those of you who are praying for me. I was sick all week. And I mean sick. And uh, some, sometimes God has a way of making you rest when you won't do it. So um, that being said, I went in early yesterday morning, starting preparing the message for today. Most of you know it takes me usually three days to prepare a message. Late last night, I came to the very clear realization I was not going to be able to be fully ready to teach 2 Timothy 3. So we'll be looking at that next week. And so forgive your pastor for his frailties. Uh, this morning, we are going to look at a message I taught seven or eight months ago on a Wednesday night. So turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 14. And we are going to be looking at the time of the judges. And you know what's amazing about this stuff? God's Word is always right on time. And I find that even when we have to change the message to teach something different than what was planned, you know what? God's faithful and He knows what He's doing. Amen? I would encourage you to read 2 Timothy 3. I, I am about halfway through with it, and I'll tell you, it's a powerful chapter. I titled the message, Perilous Times and His Precious Word. And boy, it's such a picture of the world we live in today. And so I want to encourage you to read that in preparation for next week. But Judges, let me give you some background. Since we, some of you may have never even heard a chapter taught out of Judges in your life. Let me tell you that Judges is not a book about a bunch of guys in black robes. Amen? That's not what it's about. Judges is really God's appointed deliverers that he was raising up during a time when Israel was in total rebellion against him. The book of Judges and its 21 chapters spans a 400-year period of time where we see seven cycles of rebellion. And what would happen is this. The children of Israel, God would give them a deliverer. He would be a godly man who would restore them back unto him. They would walk with God as long as the deliverer was there. As soon as he died, they would run back and start to worship the idols again. God would then bring a people among those idol worshipers who would then oppress them or put them into bondage. After some length of time, in that bondage, they would finally realize, whoops, this is not so good, and they would cry out to God, and God would yet again bring them another deliverer who would then restore them back into himself, who they would then walk with the Lord as long as the deliverer was there, and as soon as he died, they would run back to the idols again. And this happened seven times in the book of Judges. And when you see that, you think, what a bunch of knuckleheads. But the truth is, does that sound like your life and mine sometimes or not? We're walking with the Lord, we're doing great with Him, and then it's not long before we start to get comfortable in it, and we cease to be desperate for God, and maybe our eyes get, are no longer focused on the one who's delivered us, and before long we're running back to the ways of the world. And not until we come to the end of ourselves and realize the bondage that we've placed ourselves back in, that we cry out to Him and He restores us yet again. So as we look at Israel and we think, what a bunch of knuckleheads, and they were, you know, we're in that group with them, aren't we? Now, the book of Judges is an incredible book, and tonight, or tonight, t this morning, we're coming to the final of these judges that were raised up. This final time of restoration before we move out of the book of Judges, and it's a man that is such an enigma to me, because this man, as we're going to see as I give you a preview, and I warm you up and bring you to the place before we get to the text itself, we're going to see that this man by the name of Samson was a man that truly was a saved soul and a wasted life. And this is a word for every one of us in the room this morning, that you can have a saved soul and a wasted life. That God has such incredible and great and awesome things He wants to do with you, in you, and through you, but you can miss out if you take your eyes off of Him. And that's exactly what happened to Samson. And let me tell you a little bit about this guy. He was a man uniquely called by God. He's in, the, he's in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. I mentioned this before, that a lot of the brothers in India, when they get saved, they've got these names where they're named after uh, pagan and Hindu idols, so they change their name and they pick names out of the Bible, and there's a lot of guys named Samson. And I keep, I keep wanting to tell them I don't do it, but I want to tell them, okay, I know you read Hebrews 11, 
And I know you saw that he was in the Hall of Faith, but you might want to go back to Judges and pick out a different name after you're done. Because Samson, not so much. He is a guy who's uniquely called by God, just to give you an idea, that even before he was born, God had his hand on Samson. There's very few people in the Bible we see like this. John the Baptist, Samuel. But he was a man who was born to parents who were crying out, barren, unable to have children. And in Judges 13, Jesus shows up and speaks directly to Manoah, who is the father of Samson, and says also to his wife that he's going to give them a child, and they make sacrifice unto the Lord, and he gives clear direction for his life that he is to be a young man who lives after the Nazarite vow from before his birth. That even his mother is to follow the Nazarite vow while he's in her womb, lest he defile, lest she defile the child. So God has this wonderful plan. They even get to see the Lord ascend back into heaven right before their eyes. They see all of this happening, and they're going to have this son. Imagine the great anticipation. So Samson, again, is this deliverer who had been born in an incredibly unique way. After 31 years of peace, they had gone back into bondage, been in bondage to the Philistines for 40 years, and Samson was going to be the guy. Now let me tell you about the Nazarite vow, and then we'll get to the text, because the Nazarite vow is key to understanding the text. Now the Nazarite vow, Nazar means to separate. So this child was to be separated unto the Lord from before he was even born. And they were to take this vow. Now a vow is not just a promise to do my best. But in Samson's case, this was an unbreakable bond for a lifetime. Now, what was he bound to? There were three attributes to the Nazarite vow. And here's what they were. Number one, he was to separate himself from wine and similar drink. He was not to allow himself to be intoxicated in his lifetime ever. He was never to drink one ounce of wine, period, ever. Now, why? Because what does wine do? What does alcohol do? The Bible says in Proverbs, wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. In Proverbs 31, it said it is not for kings to drink wine nor princes strong drink. In Ephesians 5, it says do not be drunk with wine which is dissipation but be filled with the Holy Spirit. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says of pastors, they are not to be given to wine. Now, I don't want this to come across legalistic, but none of the pastors here drink alcohol. And if you catch them doing it, let, let me know they're fired, all right? And the reason is that what does it do? It lowers our inhibitions. Why do people drink when they want to go out and meet people? Because, oh man, it makes me loose, man. It makes me, you know, I just, I, 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 you know what it does? It lowers conviction. It lessens the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's why we're not drunk with wine. We're filled with the Holy Spirit, amen? And as you've heard me say many times, it's interesting that alcohol is called spirits, isn't it? We don't need the spirits, we need the spirit, amen? We need not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's said of him, you're to never have any alcohol. Why? Because it lowers your inhibitions, it lessens the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And you know what, Samson, you're set apart unto God, and as one set apart unto God, you are to have nothing to do with alcohol. Not only that, the Nazarite vow said, no wine, no grape juice, no vinegar, no grapes, no seeds, no skins, period. Why? Because God knows how we are. We'll look for the loophole. Well, I can't have wine, but I could have wine coolers. Or, well, you know what I mean? Or, you know, I could can, I can take grapes and leave them in a thing and let them ferment and just eat the grapes that have alcohol, but it's not wine. You know what? He made it real clear. You have none of it. Don't go anywhere near it. Don't touch it. Don't be near it. Don't compromise or try to find a loophole to sin. Stay as far away from it as possible. Those who want to be used by God need to be separated unto Him and must have a clear mind, not impacted by wine or beer or strong drink or drugs, etc. Amen? It's interesting, the word for sorcery in the Bible is pharmakia, where we get the word pharmaceutical. So it's linking sorcery with drugs. And you know what? I think that point's made. You know, you want to live a life set apart to God to serve in ministry. Stay away from that which will make you forget the word or quiet the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So number one, he was to separate himself from wine and similar drink or anything that had to do with wine. Grapes, all of it. Number two, he was to let his hair grow long. 
What in the world has this got to do with anything? Let your hair grow long. Why? Now, in the 60s, everybody seemed to have a Nazarite vow, evidently. But <laughs> the point is, it was to set apart him visually to all who would see him. It was to be a mark of identification with his vow to be separated to God. It was that everybody would look and know that man has taken a Nazarite vow because he's never cut his hair. So Samson, as we're going to see, his strength doesn't come from his long hair, but from the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, he was to be set apart, not to be intoxicated, not to allow himself to be altered in his thinking. And he was also be, to live a life that would be identified for the man that he was. You know what? What a word for us as Christians. Go on record for being a Christian. Amen? That was kind of weak. Go on record for being a Christian. Amen? We should not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. People go on record for everything else they want to represent. You know what? I'm a husband and a father and a pastor and, you know, you got hobbies and all those things. But you know what? Before I'm any of that, I'm a Christian. And before you're anything that you are, you're a Christian. And we should go on record for our faith. Don't be an undercover Christian. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So separated from wine, clear mind focused on God. Let his hair grow long that he'd be identifiable and his light would shine before the world. And then the third thing in the Nazarite vow is they were to be separated from the dead. They were to go nowhere near a dead body. They were not to attend a funeral. If they did, if they went near a dead body or touched a dead body, again, that would break the vow. And even for a Jew, it would defile them, and they were unclean for seven days. So the Nazarite was to have nothing to do with death. Now, what is that a picture of? We're to be separated from the world, the Bible tells us. Amen? And people struggle with this. I've had people debate me. Well, how are we going to reach people? Well, you minister to the world, but you have no fellowship with it. And you know the difference. Amen? We know the difference. We know when we're ministering to people and when we're carousing with the people, right? We know it. And so he's being told, don't hang around where the corpses are. The Bible says that people aren't saved, are dead in their trespasses and sins. That does not make us better than them. We should not be self-righteous about it. But we need to recognize that when we're hanging out with the world, we're hanging out with dead people. And dead people do dead people stuff. Amen? And you know what? Don't be surprised when someone who's dead acts like they're dead. You know, dogs bark, we shouldn't be surprised. People who don't know God act like they don't know God, we shouldn't be surprised. But when people who know God act like they don't know God, we should be surprised. Amen? So it's to be separated from the dead. Have nothing to do with it. The Bible says in Luke, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, and even his own wife, he cannot be my disciple. You know what he's saying? You've got to separate yourself from everything. Even, if, even your own family must come behind your relationship to me. Your relationship and your passion and your love for me must be first and foremost, period. This is the calling upon Samson's life. So to help Samson walk in obedience to this vow and God's supernatural calling on his life as the deliverer from Philistine bondage, God gave him godly parents. You know what? Youth group kids, be thankful for godly parents. Sometimes you might think, oh, I wish I had so-and-so's parents. I let them do anything. No, you don't want them for parents. You want godly parents, amen? Because godly parents love you enough to give you godly direction. Godly parents who had seen Jesus face to face, who had seen his glory in the flame of the altar, who had fallen on their faces before God. Samson had been blessed by God. The Spirit of God had been placed upon him, and his name means bright light or sunny. He was to be the bright light coming into darkness. This guy has everything going for him. He was to be God's man coming and bringing God's people back to the Lord. But what we're going to see, sadly, is though he's a man uniquely called by God and divinely equipped by God, at the same time, he's going to be a man who's going to blow it big time. And you know why? Because why he is uniquely called by God and divinely equipped by God and given, empowered in a mighty way by God, he is a man of unreliable character. So if you're a note taker, the title of the message, Compromise the Enemy of Calling compromise the enemy of calling and nothing can quench the calling equipping empowering and gifting of god quicker than a self-centered flesh-driven will 
of man succumbing to the world's temptations. Samson is an object, object lesson for every single one of us that even though a man or woman can be uniquely called and divinely equipped and spiritually empowered, it can all be fruitless if there is compromise and a lack of godly character. We're the ones missing out. God's going to get his will done with or without us. Remember, reputation is who you are when everyone's watching. Character is who you are when no one is watching. And so again, if you're taking notes, three points. Again, Samson, a saved soul in a wasted life. Compromise, the enemy of calling. Three areas of compromise we'll see in this morning's text. Number one, he is led by the flesh, not by the spirit. He is led by the flesh, not by the spirit. Number two, he walks in direct disobedience to the word of God. He walks in direct disobedience to the word of God. And thirdly, he takes his vow of separation lightly. Compromise is the enemy of calling. The number one question you probably get in your own life, and the number one question I hear as a pastor is, how do I know what the calling is on my life? We've all wondered that at some point, haven't we? Let me tell you, the enemy of calling is compromise. When you start to compromise, you may miss out on your calling completely. So he's being led by his flesh, not by the Spirit. He's walking in direct disobedience to the Word of God, and he takes the vow of separation lightly being separated from the world and unto the Lord. So let's begin looking at the text. Compromise, the enemy of calling. Number one, being led by the flesh, not by the spirit. Look at verse one. Now Samson went down. And yes, he did. He did. It says there, he not only went down literally, but he went down spiritually as well. And look, it says, and Samson went down to Timnah. Now, Timnah was a city located four miles within the Philistine border. Now, who is he supposed to be conquering? The Philistines. I just told you 45 seconds ago. Mark, come on. But he was supposed to be defeating the Philistines who had had them in bondage for 40 years. So he goes down to Timnah, and no doubt he's going to go down there and wreak some havoc and, and tear up on the Philistines, right? No. Is it what he should have done? Yes. What's in the Philistine camp? Open idolatry, sexual immorality, behavior in an environment that should have repulsed this man of God, that should have repulsed the Holy Spirit dwelling upon him. The ju- and no doubt it did, but he was not listening. Sadly, instead of being repulsed by their behavior, behavior, Samson is going to be enticed by it. Guys, when we put ourselves into ungodly environments, we're going to be enticed by it. Is that true or not? You get around the world and you start to look at it, and, and you know, the enemy is, oh, it's not so bad, and you know, come on, man, and you know, your friends are doing it. You know other Christians who do it, so what's the big deal? What, do you got to be Mr. Goody Two-Shoes all the time? You know, and you know what, and God will forgive you anyway. He's always talking about His grace. Let's let Him prove it. The enemy loves to do that, doesn't he? And whisper in your ear, Samson's flesh is aroused. He's walking through this camp. He should have been like Joseph, fleeing from youthful lust, but instead he walks through the camp, he's looking around him, and he starts to get enticed by things he has never seen before. He's seeing this sexual immorality. He's seeing the idols everywhere. And the curiosity has peaked. His flesh now wants to be fed, and he seeks to feed his fleshly desires. Israel's deliverer, is in the enemy territory, and instead of, instead of conquering, he's carousing. Look what it says. Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman. This is going to be this, this brother's downfall. Samson was a he-man with a she-weakness. He was a guy that was as strong as anybody maybe who's ever lived physically, and was as weak as anybody who's ever lived in, in his Love for women. Now, God had a woman for him, no doubt. But the woman was not supposed to be a Philistine. Amen? And he went down and he saw a woman. And this is, again, no doubt he saw many women before, but this one caught his eye. Now, what's special about her, this Philistine woman? Was it her her wit and her charm and her personality? He hasn't talked to her. Was it her incredible love for the Lord? Absolutely not. Samson was hanging out where he shouldn't have been. His flesh was aroused and was now being led by it. Samson is being moved by 
lust. It says there, he saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. The very people God had called Samson to destroy and deliver Israel from. A pagan, immoral, and idolatrous people. And instead, he's down there checking out the women. A he-man with a she-weakness. And he is going to miss out on God's highest. Now look at verse 2. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying... Now, what we're going to see next are the very first words recorded by, about, by Samson. First words we see recorded in all of Scripture being spoken by Samson. Now remember, the Lord's blessing is upon him. He's been set apart to God. The Holy Spirit is moving upon his life. What great, profound, and noble words of godly wisdom are going to come flowing out of the lips of this deliverer being called by God to deliver these people out of bondage to the Philistines? What glorious words is he going to speak? Look what it says. I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, go get her for me as a wife. Samson, I see woman, get her for me. These are really godly, glorifying words, aren't they? This is a man focused on spiritual things, isn't it? This is a man moved by the flesh, not led by the Spirit. We see no prayer. We we see no seeking of any godly guidance at all. And while his parents are the ones who were to arrange the marriage in those days, he doesn't even seek counsel from his godly parents. Instead, he's whipped up to a fever pitch of lust. He simply demands they go get him what he wants. Give me what I want, not what the Lord wills, what I want. Is that the battle we we fight every day or what? Give me what I want. But the Word of God says, I don't care what it says right now. I know what I want. Give it to me. By the way, when you do that, how's that work out for you? You know, you get what you want, and then later you go, I should have done this God's way. Duh. The point is, we all can't deal with it, and yet we are so lame, we keep going back and doing it again. We're like the children of Israel in this cycle of sin over and over again. None of this would have happened had he not been hanging out in enemy territory. Guys and gals, you're not going to meet the man or woman God has for you in a bar. Amen? Well, I met this guy, you know, and you know he just seemed really nice, and he said he'd go to church, and... Don't try to find a guy that, you know, oh, he's a hottie, or, oh, man, she's a babe, and, you know, and then try to make them godly. Don't do that. Look for someone who is godly. Amen? Look for someone who loves God more than you do. If you have to, you know, build up his resume before you present him to your friends, probably not God's guy. Amen? I'm always concerned when someone starts pitching me on their, well, I met this guy, and, well, you know, I know, well, I met him at a restaurant. A restaurant, really? What kind of restaurant? Well, um, a restaurant, it was... uh, They serve alcohol there? Well, yeah, kind of. They serve alcohol. But, you know, he grew up in the church, really. Well, it was was the Mormon church, but he did go. And, you know, and they start trying to present to you and give you reasons. And, you know, when it's God's person, you don't have to knock walls down. You don't have to make stuff happen. You don't have to strive. You don't have to try to contort it to fit the Word of God. When it's God's man or God's woman, it's going to be evident. And you know what? Your relationship with them will draw you closer to God, not away from God. Amen? But sadly, what does Samson do? He's being led by the flesh. And Samson, led by the flesh, sees a woman. He's motivated by the flesh and tells his parents as he's wandering through the enemy territory, he he opens himself up to temptation. You know what? You know what your struggles are. Stay away from the places that will bring temptation. Amen? If you've got a problem with alcohol, don't live next door to a liquor store. Amen? If you've got a problem with pornography, rip the internet out of your house. Amen? Amen. If you've got a problem with gambling, whatever it might be, you need to remove the very things that will cause temptation and bring temptation. So compromise the enemy of calling, number one, Samson being led by his flesh, not the spirit. He's being led by the flesh. That's what brought him to the place. That's what made him pick out the woman he picked out. That's what made him go to his parents and say, get her for me. We see no prayer, no godly counsel, no godly wisdom, no godly direction. He has squelched the Holy Spirit's voice in his life, and he's letting the flesh make all the decisions. We're going to see how that works out. Number two, walking in direct disobedience to the word of God. Look at verse three. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren, 
or among all my people that you must go out and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines. Now, remember that his mom and dad were godly people. His mom and dad had seen Jesus face to face. And when the parents speak, they give him godly counsel. But when we're whipped up in our flesh, the last thing we want is godly counsel. You ever notice that? You ever notice how you avoid Christian people who are really on fire for God when you know you're totally blowing it and you want to keep doing it? I told you this. I have certain friends I don't hear from for months on end. I know as soon as I call them what they're up to. Because when they're avoid, not, not that I'm perfect. I mean, I do, I've done the same. The point I'm making is there's certain times when the last thing we want, oh man, here comes that Christian. Oh man. Dude, just keep your opinion. I don't want to hear it. We never want to hear the word of God when we're walking in rebellion to it. And the word of God is being, you know, here they're saying, aren't, hey, uh, Samson, aren't there women amongst our people? As opposed to the uncircumcised Philistines? Those who have vow, made a vow against Almighty God, those who are involved in idolatry. Samson, isn't it God's will for you not to be unequally yoked? My paraphrase of what his parents are saying. What Samson wanted was in direct disobedience to the word of God. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3 and 4, Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. How does God feel about it? The anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly if you get married to people who are not walking with God. Do not give your children to their sons. This is supposed to be the spiritual leader of the day, Samson. This is supposed to be the guy leading them away from the Philistines, and now he wants to marry one of them. Talk about being led by the flesh. Then he says, And Samson said to his father, after getting this godly advice, Get her for me. She pleases me well. I want woman, get her for me. She pleases me well. Samson, where's the spirit in any of this? Anybody praying right about now? The only thing he's got is godly counsel, and what does he choose to do? Ignore it. His parents give him godly counsel, and all he does is reiterate his fleshly desires. I don't care what you, I, I am mom and dad, okay, cool, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Moms and dads are like that, you know. You're going to tell me, just trying to be a bummer on my trip here. I'm just, I know what I want, and I want it, so go get her for me. And that's Samson's decree to his parents. Samson didn't want what was right, but what pleased him. His flesh was ruling his life. He was not concerned with what God wanted, but what he wanted. He disregarded God's word and godly counsel and demanded what his flesh wanted. And this is still prevalent today. We're bound by romantic feelings. Many will disregard God's word and godly counsel and demand what their flesh wants. Let me make it really clear. I already said it, but I'm going to say it again. We are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Amen? Parents, you are doing your kids no favor to let them date when they're young teenagers, and especially someone who doesn't know God. Amen? What, you know what? The pattern you allow them to start as young teenagers is the pattern that they're going to follow. And you know what? I know it's gonna be, I'm real popular with the youth group after this, but that's all right. I love you guys. Here's the point. Pastor Dave's opinion. You're not getting married when you're 13, so why are you dating anybody? I don't get it. All it does is open up the door for temptation. Amen? I was a youth pastor for 15 years. I saw thousands of relationships. Not one of them remained godly until marriage. Not one. Out of thousands. At the very least, they get their eyes off of God and on each other. There's a time to stand up and say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and raise your kids in a godly way and protect them from all the heartache that will come if you allow them to follow after their flesh. Amen? Don't just look for one who's taken the name Christian, but wait for one who's passionately in love with Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Now again, that's Pastor... I, I, I want to say, Pastor Dave's opinion on the dating thing, please don't, you know, that's between you and the Lord. I will never try to parent your children. That's not my job. But I just want to share from the heart of a dad who's got four teenagers and a, and a man who spent 15 years ministering to thousands of teenagers. My prayer would be that we would learn and not fall into that trap. Verse 4. But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord. What? What do you mean it's of the Lord? 
Didn't you just say that Samson was acting contrary to the word of God? Yes, he was. But you know what's great about our God? God can take even our disobedience and use it for his glory in the end. Now, we will have heavy-duty consequences, but God, in the midst of his disobedience, is going to use this to get Samson to do what God had called him to do, which is to break the bondage of the children of Israel from the Philistines, at least to begin and move him into that direction. And we'll see how he's going to do that as we continue on through the chapter. The point here is not that Samson's behavior is acceptable, but that God's will will still be done in spite of Samson's sinful behavior. God's will will be done with us or without us. And I want to make out this point. The end does not justify the means, because good comes of it does not justify ungodly behavior. God would use Samson to bring about his purpose, not because he was faithful, but in spite of his sinful behavior, the results are going to be the same. You know, my prayer would be, Lord, work through me, not in spite of me. Amen? Lord, don't do stuff through me because of the way I've blown it, but Lord, allow me to walk in the center of your will that you might use me for your glory, that I might be a tool in the hand of my master. So compromise the enemy of calling. Number one, being led by the flesh and not by the spirit. As long as you're led by the flesh, you will not be fruitful in the calling God has in your life. Walking in direct disobedience to the word of God. As long as we walk in disobedience to the word of God, we will miss out on God's highest. Third and final point that will cover the rest of the chapter. Taking his vow of separation lightly. Guys, God has called us to be separated from the world and unto the Lord. Remember the Nazarite vow and watch how Samson does with it. Three rules, Samson. No wine, nothing like it. Grow your hair long, Samson, and don't touch any dead things. That's, that's it. There's the Nazarite vow to separate you from the world and unto the Lord. Look at verse 5. Let me finish verse 4. That he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. So it was God's will what he was doing to bring about his will against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. As I told you, they were in bondage. God was actually going to use his disobedience as a way to stir up a, a, a battle with the Philistines and Samson actually to come against them. Now, verse 5. So Samson went down to Timnah. Now, that means he went home, he thought about it, and he decided he wanted that woman anyway. Talked to his parents. They gave him godly counsel. I want her anyway. I don't care. I don't care what the Word of God says. I don't care what the Lord's told you. I don't care what godly counsel says. I want what I want. I'm going to go get it. Now, look what it says. I find this interesting. He went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now, what's a guy doing who's not supposed to have anything to do with grapes walking through vineyards? This is compromise, isn't it? Well, I can't eat grapes, but I can walk by them. Let me see just how close I can get to the world and not really do what I'm not supposed to do. No wine, no grapes, no raisins. One of the last places this brother should be is walking through a vineyard. But once we accept compromise in one area of life, it becomes easier to compromise in others. He had already compromised that he's not supposed to be unequally yoked. He's already going after a Philistine woman. So how easy is it just to walk through a vineyard? Well, yeah, I'm already going after a woman I shouldn't be married to, so walking through a vineyard is not that big a deal. I've sinned in this one area of my life, so sinning in other areas is not a problem. He saw the woman and lust stirred up in his heart, and going through the vineyards now to get her is, is in direct contrast to the vow. Now, notice what happens when he's walking through a vineyard. I find this interesting. Look what it says. Now, to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him. Now, what a great picture here. The Bible says that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Right? He roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And when does this picture of a satanic attack come against Samson? When he's wandering through the vineyard. When he's in the place of compromise, here comes the enemy. When you and I walk outside of God's will, we disregard what he says, we go after the flesh, we walk in compromise, don't be surprised when the enemy is there waiting for you. And that's exactly what happens. He's heading down toward Timnah, seems to take a detour with his parents through the vineyard, he's walking in the midst of sinful temptation by his own free will, 
And when we are complacent in our walk, the enemy is right there ready to pounce. It says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober. I find that interesting. Be sober. He's in a vineyard. Be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks like, about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Samson, out of God's will, off track, without accountability, and here comes the enemy. Verse 6. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart. This is a picture of God's grace. Isn't it? When the enemy comes, you know what's interesting? The Word of God tells us that when the enemy comes, that the Lord, with temptation, he makes a way of escape. Even though we've chosen to compromise and we get ourselves in a situation we shouldn't be in and the enemy shows up, God opens up a door for us to escape away from it. And that's what's happening here with Samson. The lion shows up and God gives him a way of escape. The key to having victory over Satan in the midst of temptation to take the way of escape is to do the very thing that happened here. It's to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Look what it says there. The Holy Spirit came upon him. That's the only reason he was able to defeat the enemy is because the Spirit of God was upon him. Guys, Satan will kick your tail every time if you try to face him on your own. Amen? Without him, you can do nothing. You will be defeated every time. It's only when we walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, empowered by Almighty God, as we're walking with him and dwelt by him, that we can have victory over the the trials and the temptations of this life. Amen? And so he, in the power of the Holy Spirit, rips this lion apart. Remember this, the greatest example of this, being empowered by the Spirit, is Jesus. If you remember, at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, and it was right then that he went out and he was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And he was able to overcome that temptation, answering every time with the Word of God. And he answered with the word of God because he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. What a great picture we see here and a great example for us. It wasn't Samson's hair, but the spirit that gave him strength. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Now look what it says there. As one who would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand, but he did not tell his father and mother what he had done. This may point to the fact that he knew he was wrong being in the vineyard to begin with. He'd have to tell his parents where he was and how it happened. And and so instead, he said nothing about tearing this lion apart. Verse 7. Then he went down and talked with the woman. And she pleased Samson well. Now, the enemy attacks. God gives him victory and he goes right back to it. Anybody else besides me ever done that? You compromise. Temptation comes, God makes a way of escape, he empowers you by his spirit to get past it, and right off the other side of that victory waits another temptation. And here it is, there's the woman again. You would think the Holy Spirit's upon him now, and he went, what was I thinking? You're a Philistine. I'm not supposed to marry you, I'm supposed to kill you. What am I doing? But instead, he talks to her. Can you, I, I just kind of imagine Samson talking to the woman, I can't, you know, shy, and hey, how you doing? You know, right, you know. Instead of being obedient to the Lord. Only possible that this woman could please him as he looked at her from a physical perspective. Because spiritually, there was nothing pleasing about her. She was ungodly. She was an idolater. Verse 8. After some time, when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. Now, this is interesting. He talks to the woman. She pleases him well. He goes home again, still decides he wants to marry her. And on the way back, he goes to the vineyard again. Samson. And I think I'll go back to the vineyard. Matter of fact, let me go check out that lion. See those pieces, that thing. I tore that thing up. I'm going to check it. Now, this is what guys do, isn't it? We like to reminisce about our great victories in life. You ever notice the older you get, the greater you were? And so, Samson, Samson is going back to check out his victory. I'm going to go check out that lion, tore that thing up. You know, I am pretty strong, man. That lion tore that thing like, that was like a goat to me, man. That was no problem. Now, who did it? God did it. But isn't it interesting how he starts to take credit for what God did? He sticks with his rebellious act, and now he turns aside to the carcass of the lion to check out the remains. Now, look at this. Look what happens. 
And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. So he sees the lion, the lion's laying there, it's been ripped apart, and in the middle of its carcass, some bees have set in there, and there's honey there. And so in the midst of this dead body is honey. Now, what is the other thing that he is not supposed to do, besides not drinking wine or walking through the vineyard to have anything to do with it? He's not to touch what? Any dead thing, which would include a dead lion, right? It was just lying around, right? He's not supposed to touch it. Now, look what happens. Look at verse 9. He took some of it in his hands and went along eating. Now, this just sounds gross to me in any way, right? There's a dead body, a dead lion on the ground. He reaches down and touches the lion and scoops some honey out of the dead lion. And he's eating the honey as he's walking through the vineyard on the way to get the Philistine woman that he wants to marry. Samson. Enigma. Now, this is incredible to me. Because he eats the honey out of the dead body and this violates the Nazarite vow to touch no dead thing. But note that the honey is in the midst of the dead body. You know, I had a guy email about this text a few months back. He was teaching it at his church, and he was trying to understand what it meant. And he was trying to find it being a picture of Christ. It's not a picture of Christ at all. It's a picture of sin. Because the Bible tells us that sin is pleasurable for a season. But in the end, what does it do? It brings forth death. And that honey in the midst of death, reaching down, he's defiling himself. But boy, at first, it's sweet to the taste. But in the end, it defiles him. And that's exactly what sin is like for each of us. It can be sweet to the taste. Physically, you know, she's a honey. She looks good. She's sweet. But in the end, it produces death. And that's exactly what's happening to Samson. He sees only the honey and not the death. When we, you know, when we're tempted by sin, we, we see only the temporal pleasure and not the long-term consequences. Can you imagine if we just got the long-term consequences every time we were about to sin? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great? You're on your way there and all of a sudden you had a, like a free stream, you know, and a screen came up and said, okay, you do that, here's what's going to happen. Right? Throws up 500 different consequences over the next 10 years of your life. You go, oh, I'm not thinking about that. They go. But what happens, we forget about that and we focus only on the honey. Oh, the honey. Look at the honey. Oh, that looks pretty good. Going to defile you. Oh, yeah, but yeah, the honey's good. Honey good. Right? Runs down, gets the honey. Oh, this is good. Now, we know that he knows it's wrong. How do we know? Look what it says the rest of the verse. So he takes the honey, went along eating. But when he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they also ate. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of a lion. He wants people to participate in his sin, in a sense, but doesn't tell them where he got it. Here, yeah, hey, mom, dad, got, found some honey. A, a dead carcass of a lion. Didn't tell them that part. But gives them the honey, has them participating in it. But this, to me, is proof that he knows what he's doing is wrong. The character is not what we do when the character is not what we do when, uh, when people are watching, but what we do when no one is watching. Amen. And he's proven himself not to be a man of character. Look at verse ten. Now let's see what happens. Now he's he's touched a dead body. He's been walking through vineyards. Let's see what happens next with Samson. So his father went down to the woman, and Samson gave a feast there, for young men used to do so. And it happened when they saw him that they brought. 30 companions to be with him. Now, where did he get these people? These are Philistines. You know what he's doing? He's having a drunken bachelor party with 30 Philistine men. Because that's what men do before they got married. Now, what in the... So he was walking through the vineyard, and then he was touching the dead body, and the word feast there literally means a drinking party. So now he's having a drinking party. He's having a bachelor party with the very people God had called him to destroy. This is so easily what can happen in the life of a Christian as we start to compromise. It's that one little compromise leads to the next one and the next one. This was God's appointed judge and deliverer. And he's so far away from his calling at this point, it is scary. He was called to destroy these people and instead he's partying with them. The progression, he walked through a vineyard and now he's having a drunken party. Samson's compromise have led him so far away from his true calling. Now he brings in 30 uncircumcised Philistine idolaters to celebrate his wedding to another Philistine idolater. And the, you know what? And the world is all too quick to join you when you sin. You ever notice that? You know who your true friends are? The ones who love you enough to call you on it when you're in sin. Give me more friends like that. Amen? 
People are not your friends who entice you to sin or encourage you in it. Well, dude, man, you know, you needed that drink, man. You know, you, know, you had a rough day. It's all good. Let me buy you the next round. Satan, you know. <laughs> not good. You want someone to go, dude, what are you doing, man? Let me pray with you. Dump that thing out. Come here, man. Let's go. You know what? I heard the Bible say, let's go have some prayer together, bro. Amen? Let me go buy you a Coke. Let's get out of this place. And sadly, though, he's surrounded by people who are not going to keep him accountable for his sin, but encourage him in it. All the more reason to be separated from the world, not joined to it. Now look what happens. Then Samson said to them, let me pose a riddle to you. If you can correctly solve and explain it to me within seven days of the feast, then I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. So Samson's seven-day marriage feast, usually the groom gave the groomsmen a gift. But here Samson challenges them to a, to a riddle and tells them he's going to give them 30 new suits if they can solve it. In those days, that would be a great, a great amount of wealth, a great amount of, a, a great gift to give someone a full suit of clothing. Verse 13. But if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. And they said to him, pose your riddle that we may hear it. Now, again, this is a very extravagant bet for some of the men who may have been giving him the clothes off of their back. But, you know, he poses his riddle. They're all drinking together. All right, throw out the riddle. Let's, let's, let's give it a shot. Verse 14. So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. Now, what's he talking about? The lion. Now, it's one thing to come to the place of sinning, to disobey God, but it's another thing when you start to make a joke out of your sinful behavior. He's literally taking his sinful behavior and turning it into a joke. He's laughing about it. He's going to profit from it. And that's his heart, is to take this behavior that he should have been repentant and broken over, and instead he's using it as an opportunity to make wealth from it. He makes a riddle of his own sinful behavior. He'd broken the Nazarite vow when he had done it, and here he is at a new low in spiritual insensitivity. And again, this, also this riddle was all but impossible to solve. And so in his sinful behavior, he's using it again to profit. So it says there, now for three days they could not explain the riddle. But it came to pass on the seventh day, this is the last day of the feast, that they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us, or else we, were, we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Now, these are pretty nice groomsmen. Wouldn't you love to have a bunch of guys, a bunch of guys at your, you know, your rehearsal dinner? And you pose a riddle and they say, now if you don't, you know, if you don't call your bride aside, now if you don't get him to tell us the answer, we're going to set you on fire and burn your father's house down. Nice guys. This is why another reason to be separated from the world. Amen? So the world comes to, and this, these guys threaten his wife. To, and, and you know what? Samson's deceptive riddle had brought potential harm to his own wife. Here's what's happening. It's a woman he shouldn't be marrying, being threatened by men he should have never met, over a riddle he should have never posed, making light of sin, sinful actions he never should have taken. Is that pretty clear? Let me say that again. A woman he shouldn't be marrying, being threatened by men he shouldn't have never met, over a riddle he should have never posed, making light of sinful actions he never should have taken. Samson's consequences for compromise were just beginning. What happened would continue through the next several verses. Now look at it, the next several chapters actually. Second half of that, verse 15. Have you invited us in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? He says, you know what, we're going to... You invited us, and he posed this riddle, and it was really your way of just ripping us off. And that's what they say to his potential wife. And then she says, look at verse 16, that Samson's wife wept on him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have posed a riddle to the sons of my people, but you have not explained it to me. And he said to her, look, I have not explained it to you, to my father or my mother, so should I explain it to you? Now Samson's wife seeks the answer through tears rather than telling her husband the truth. And marriage requires work when it's Christ-centered. And it's near impossible when Christ is not involved. And what's happening here is that she's trying to manipulate him using her tears rather than speaking to him and questioning him in a real clear way. Now, I want to say this. 
If you're unequally yoked, stay and pray because that's God's will. Amen? If you're already married, stay and pray. That's God's will. And God can use you to draw that person unto Him. So she starts to cry and she's weeping on him, verse 17. Now, she had wept on him the seven days while the feast lasted. And it happened on the seventh day that he told her, because she pressed him so much, then he explained the riddle to the sons of her people. Now, why does he finally explain it? Seventh day would be the actual marriage time. And this would be the consummation of the marriage. And he was a he-man with a she-weakness. And so what did he do? He's like, well, I'll just tell her because, you know, and again, driven by the flesh, not by the spirit. And it says there, and she explained the riddle to the sons of her people. Notice where her loyalties were, with her people, not with the Lord. This is not a match made in heaven. When it is, each one is only focused on what is best for themselves. You know what, guys, when the match is not made in heaven, we only think about what's best for us. And when you marry somebody or are dating somebody who doesn't know God, they cannot have agape love, only Aaron love, only a self-centered what's in it for me kind of love. That's the only love that is possible. And that's the only kind of love that this woman could have for Samson. And so all she cared about was what can I get for myself? I need to save myself. Rather than give him the truth, as soon as he tells me I'm going to run, and even if it causes him harm, that's okay. Because my only part of this relationship is about me. And sadly, that's why so many marriages are so destructive today, is that each person is so self-centered. Each person is, what's in it for me? What can you do for me? You know, when you're dating a lot, when you're younger, that's what happens. You date somebody with a, what can you do it for me attitude, and as soon as they stop doing for you, you find someone else who can do more for you. And that's why you have a bunch of trial marriages all ending in divorce, and what pattern have you been living out prior to your real marriage? That's why we need to be careful and make sure that we wait upon the Lord before we enter into any kind of a relationship. So, in verse 1 and 2, he had to have her. All he cared about was this woman. Now, after seven days of drinking and being manipulated by her, look what happens. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, which is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to, him, said to them, they, they told, he told the answer. What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? He went, oh, she told you. He realized he'd been duped. Now, after, remember verse 1 and 2. Woman, get her for me. Enticed by her. He walked away from his vow before God to get this woman. And now that she has betrayed him, which, duh, he should have seen coming. Look how he responds. Look how he, what he calls her. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. She goes from being enticing to being a cow. <coughs> She's a cow to him now. What, what happened? He was looking only from the physical. He was not seeing her, the person she was spiritually, that she was an, an idol worshiper, that she had no alliance or allegiance to him. She did not have the Holy Spirit living within her. And now she acts like someone who doesn't know God, and he calls her a cow. Take your time to get to know the person beneath the surface before you get involved in a relationship. Amen? You never know when you're getting yourself a cow. <laughs> All this grief is a result of his own sinful behavior. Let's finish up. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men, took their apparel, and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. So his anger was aroused, and he went back to his father's house. Notice this, Samson was she-weak, but his strength came again from the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And what does he do? He owes a debt, so he goes down and kills 30 guys and takes their clothes and brings them back and gives them to these guys. God was actually bringing about his work, which was to go out and destroy the idolaters, but it took the disobedience of Samson and the consequences of his sin to get him to the place where he would finally do what God had wanted him to do all along. He could have just done this and avoided all the headaches, right? But isn't it incredible that God would continue to be with him in the midst of all this? Doesn't this show the picture of God's grace that even when we've blown it, what an incredible God we serve. The Lord used these circumstances to turn Samson back to his calling to fight against the Philistines, not to entertain them. 
And so too, sin's consequences in our own lives can help to turn us back to the Lord, putting our own flesh to death instead of entertaining it. And in his anger, Samson leaves his Philistine wife and goes to spend time with his parents. And evidently, he had not consummated the marriage yet, because look what it says. It says there, the last verse, after he goes back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. The father comes out and finds out that the groom has left, and that the groom has called his daughter a cow. And so he gives his daughter to the best man instead. How's this working out going outside of God's will? Not so good. Samson has, because of his she weakness, that was the first thing. And because of the compromise, he had gone down to Timnah where he never should have been. He saw a woman he should have never seen. He was enticed by what was going on around him in a place he never should have been outside of going there to do war. Again, what a picture for us. We're to minister to the world but have no fellowship with it. Amen? When we go into the world, we're going there with a mission, which is to preach Jesus Christ, Him crucified and risen from the dead, not to fellowship with the world. Amen? He didn't go down there with the mission God had for him. He went down instead for fellowship, and he saw a woman, and he was enticed by her. Having been enticed by her, having compromised once, the next compromise comes, he walks through the vineyard, getting as close to sin without actually doing it. In the midst of compromise, out comes the lion, the temptation that comes from the enemy. God, by His grace, empowers him, gives him a way of escape. He tears the lion to pieces. But yet, he goes away. He does not repent, is not restored. Instead, goes back after that woman again, but along the way, goes back through the vineyard. Back through the place of compromise one more time. Turns aside to see the dead lion and defiles himself yet again because he's enticed by the temporary sweetness, not the long-term consequences. After touching it, having been defiled, now his sin gets even greater. Instead of walking through the vineyard, he sits down and has a drunken party with the very people that in our perspective he should have been witnessing to. Amen? Now as Samson leaves, and it's all over, what kind of testimony does he have with the Philistines? When you go and drink with the world, and party with the world, and hang out with the world, and compromise with the world, what kind of testimony do you have before the world? I've had people tell me, I, can't, I can never witness to those people because they've seen me do too much garbage. And while that may be true, my prayer would be that you would come to them in brokenness and humility and say, you've seen the mistakes I've made, but let me tell you about the God of grace who has restored my life. So, We see God's grace even in the midst of Samson's rebellion, allowing circumstances to get him back on track, deliver him from a marriage to a Philistine woman. He could have avoided all this heartache if he had just obeyed God to begin with. Isn't this a long route to go through for Samson? Didn't he go through a lot of treacherous stuff that could have been avoided if he had just obeyed the word of God? So in closing, Samson saved soul and wasted life, compromised the enemy of calling, three areas of compromise, in Samson's life, we can all learn from, number one, being led by the flesh, not by the Spirit. Number two, walking in direct disobedience to the Word of God. And number three, taking his vow of separation lightly, the vow to be separated from the world and unto the Lord. May we all learn from Samson's mistakes. And let me close with this. Samson's name is in Hebrews 11, in God's hall of faith. Doesn't that, isn't that a word of encouragement for all of us? That God can still use a man, and guess what? His biggest mistakes are still in front of him. Let me encourage you to go home and read. He met a woman named Delilah. That's still in front of him. He doesn't learn very quickly. What a picture of each of us. But praise God for His grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You, Lord. And I pray, Father, that You would stir up the gifts within us. And Lord, that we would be able to recognize the calling You have upon our lives. And Lord, as you have called us, that we would not allow the enemy of compromise to come in. Lord, that we would not compromise our faith and compromise our walk. Lord, that we would not be led by our flesh, but led by your spirit, filled with your spirit. The Lord, we'd walk in obedience to the word of God. And Lord, that we would be separated from the world and unto you. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you're a God of such incredible grace that no matter what we've done, that you're willing to forgive us this morning. That we can take a million steps away from you, but it's only one step back. Lord, I pray if there's even one person here this morning, that that's their prayer. 
Lord, that even right now, they would just confess to you, Lord, I've walked away from you. Lord, bring me home. He's a faithful God. You are a faithful God, a loving God, a merciful God. Thank you for the story of the prodigal son, Lord. We want to come home, Lord. We want to walk away from this compromise and get back in the center of your will. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.